This is the parable of the lost sons. Then he said to them, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For my son, who was dead, is alive again. He was lost and is now found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son, who was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But, his, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, when he came, who has devoured your property, your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our kids can be dismissed at this time. There's good programming down the hall for them. Paul and Kara are waiting. And to the rest of you, uh, still glad you're here. Thanks for hanging around. No one uh, has really better explained the, the parable of the prodigal son in our day than a guy named Tim Keller. And so if you want to dive deeper into today's context, there's a book I would recommend to you called The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. I meant to bring it up with me and I failed to do that. Just write down The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. Charles Dickens said of this parable, it is the finest short story ever written. Uh, it's certainly the most famous of Jesus' parables, of all that he told, and it's also the longest. Um, in this story, our focus is on one son, this, but the story is not only about one son, it's a story about two sons. Verse 11 says, there was a man who had two sons. One of the sons wanders off, one of the sons stays put. 
the first son gets lost abroad and the second son gets lost at home. And Jesus' intent for us is to find in this story a radical message about God. There's an incredible statement hidden in this story And it's that every other way offered up ever for a person to connect with God, they're all wrong. They're all wrong. And this story tells us why. First, let's understand the story a little bit. It's a drama. It's told in two acts. Act one is this, a younger brother who is lost. Act two is this, an elder brother who is also lost. And so let's go in that order. Act one, the younger brother who is lost. And here's The first opening scene is the demand. Verse 12, the younger of the two sons comes to his father one day and he demands his inheritance. He says, give me what is rightfully mine, dad. Now, in any good story, the first line is the most important, right? It sets the hook. And this one certainly would have grabbed the the attention of the people that Jesus was talking to, this first line would have been shocking to the people who were hearing him tell this story because it's absolutely premature of the younger son to ask this of his father. An inheritance of a Jewish man in this day was divided according to the number of sons he had plus one part extra, okay? So if a man had three sons, his, div- his estate would be divided into four parts. If he had four sons, it would be divided into five parts. And so this man has two sons, and so his estate would have been divided into three parts. Well mathed. Good job. The hour of sleep you didn't get is not affecting you yet. Wonderful. Now, how many of you are the oldest child in your family? Uh, I am, lots of hands around, uh, you're going to like this next part. The reason for that extra portion was for the oldest son. It was expected that the oldest son would take the reins of the estate of the family, carry on the family legacy, and he would need more resources than the other sons to do this. And so it comes from the Old Testament and Deuteronomy, uh, an extra portion was given to that oldest son. And so oldest children in the room, do you think that's a good plan? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next time you're with your parents, mom, dad, it's biblical, right here, right here. Now it goes without saying that all of this dividing and transferring of the estate would not happen until the patriarch of the family passed away. Until that time, a son didn't have any right whatsoever to claim his inheritance. And to do so would have been disrespectful, not to mention hurtful, to a father who is still living. And it still is, by the way. And look at what he says. Not just give me, but give me what I know is coming to me. In other words, give me my inheritance now. Now, this insubordinate younger son is declaring that he can no longer stand to be in his father's house, uh, and his request is essentially saying, Dad, I wish you would just drop dead. Now, that's a gut punch, right, to a father? We could translate it this way. What the son is really saying is, Dad, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. 
My presence here is just a means to an end. I want to get what's mine. I'm tired of waiting till you die, and so let's do this now. And instantly, instantly we wonder, what will the Father do? Now that's the opening line. That's the hook to the story. Pretty good hook to a story. Because if you're sitting listening to Jesus, you knew what the right action for the Father to take was. Any self-respecting head of a Jewish family would just drive this rude little whiny boy out with force. There surely would have been verbal rejection, uh, if even physical rejection if necessary. But what happens? Here's another staggering thing about this story. The father doesn't do that. It says this. So, he divided his property between them. That's not what a father is supposed to do. Jesus' first hearers would have been astounded at the request of the Son, but now they are offended. They are offended at the response of the Father. When we read that He divided His property between them, the word property is this word bios. Maybe you recognize that like biology or biography. The word means life. He divides His life. The land that He owns, His estate is His life, His wealth is is tied up in his property and in his land. His identity is the land. He is standing in the, in the community. His standing is tied up in the land. He belonged to the land that he owns. It is his life. And so when his son comes and says, give me my inheritance, what he is asking him to do is to tear his life apart. Drop dead, dad, isn't far from what really will have to happen here. His identity will be crushed as his life is torn apart and given away. And Jesus' hearers know that a patriarch of that day would not endure this kind of insult. They know what will happen next in the story. This kid is going to get it. But it doesn't happen that way. The father willingly divides his life for his son. I want you to think about that and just put yourself in the shoes of the father. He's enduring the worst thing that we can face. Someone that we love that does not return our love. What do we do if our love is a rejected love? Here's what we do. We retaliate as well. We turn on the person who has rejected us, and we reject them in turn. And maybe, maybe we even do everything we can do to distance ourselves from them so we won't hurt so much at the loss of love. We, we label them as, as murderers of love, right? But that's not this father. He keeps loving his son. He divides his life. He gives his son the rejection that he's demanding. Scene two, the destruction this younger son gets his inheritance. His father divides the property, and instantly when he receives his share, the son says, now I can do whatever I want to do. And so he goes off somewhere that's not home. It doesn't matter where. He squanders his property. That's what we read. The word for property this time is not like life from before. This time it means his resources. 
He squanders his resources. The word squander means to scatter. And just like our parable a few weeks ago of the sower where the seed was scattered all over the field, here this prodigal son is scattering all of his money. He's broadcasting it all over the land that he's in. He has all the fun that his money can buy as if his money will never run out, but one day it does. And now he's in need. He becomes so desperate that he hires himself. Do you notice that? He wasn't given any work. He wasn't hired by somebody. The line literally means that he attached himself to some farmer and wore that farmer down until the farmer gave him something to do. The job that he's finally given is to feed the hogs. And so here's a very Jewish young man having to take care of pigs that are defiling to any Jewish person. Jesus' irony is rich. This young man becomes so destitute that as he's feeding the pigs, he finds himself longing to eat the pods that he was feeding to the pigs. We could say it this way, he was envious of the pig's supper because he didn't have any. And why didn't he have any? Verse 16, because no one gave him anything. And there could be hardly a deeper picture of depravity for a Jew than this. Next scene, the decision. Verse 17, he says, he's come to himself. It means that he was kind of slapped back into reality. He wakes up and he admits to himself, my goodness, I've been stupid. And in this moment of sanity, he wisely chooses to go home. But he's burned all of his bridges with his father. And so he makes a plan. It's a two-pronged plan. One, I'll go and confess to my father. I'll say, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Number two, I will ask to be a hired man. And it's the second part of this plan that is interesting. Treat me as a hired hand. He's not asking here to be a slave. A slave would have lived on the estate and worked on the estate. A hired hand is something different. A hired hand is a guy with a special skill or craft who had gone through an apprenticeship to learn that craft. A hired hand was somebody who lived in town, and so every morning he would pack a lunch, and he would go to the estate, and he would work, and then he would go back again, and so he earned a wage. And so the son is saying this, Dad, make me like a hired hand so that I can earn a wage. Why would that be the plan? You can see it. There's a Buddhist story that is very similar to the story of the prodigal son. And in that Buddhist version of the story, the errant son, when he comes home, is required to work off the penalty for his past misdeeds through years and years of servitude. This son has heard that version of the story. And that's what he's trying to do. Also this, the rabbis of Jesus' day taught that if a person violated the customs of their family or their community, then it wasn't enough just to apologize and say you're sorry. There also had to be restitution. The instruction was to repay your debt. That's the only way back into the good graces of your family, of your community, of the people. And this is what the son is trying to do. 
You can see his speech. Father, let me be an apprentice to one of your hired men, and that way I can earn a wage and begin to pay you back for all that I took from you. I know I can't be your son anymore. I know I can't be a part of the family. I've disinherited myself. I understand that, but at least this way I can pay you back. It's not a bad plan. It's well-reasoned. It's thought out. And as he slinks back home, you you can imagine him rehearsing this speech over and over, getting the words just right, so in the moment that he encounters his father again, maybe, maybe. The last scene of Act 1 is the decree. He's just about home. The focus turns to the father, and the father sees the son far off. We read that he has compassion for his son, that he, he runs out to meet him. Middle Eastern patriarchs did not run. That's something you didn't do. Running for, was for women. Running was for children. Running was not for the owners of estates because in order to run, you have to pick up your robes and you have to bare your legs and embrace the indignity of that. And so you don't do that. But this father does. A lot of commentators will say that as he does these things, he's acting kind of like mom here. Not only because he runs, but when he gets to his son, there's a kiss. And and this is all kissy-feely with the son. It's absolute emotional abandon. And that's more mom's place, right, than dad's. But this father has no self-consciousness at all. He's ignoring the tattered clothes and the unshaven face. He doesn't care about the smell of swine on his son. He throws himself on his son's neck and he gives him many kisses. That's the way the text reads because this is all about his son. And the son immediately launches into his apology. You can see him kind of grabbing his laptop and pulling up the PowerPoint Uh, for his restitution plan, but he never gets there. The father cuts him off right after he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, and he's he's not going to hear it. He interrupts, and he says to the servant, bring a robe. A robe was a customary thing to give an honored guest, but this isn't any robe. What was it? It was the best robe. The best robe would have surely been the robe of the father himself. And he says, put a ring on his hand. A ring was a symbol of sonship. And he says, put shoes on his feet. The slaves of the estate would have been barefoot, but not sons, not sons. It was a symbol of his freedom. And all these things are more than just cleaning the son up to make him comfortable. They are a collective statement about this sinful son. The father is saying, I'm not going to wait for you to clean yourself up. I'm not going to wait for you to take a bath. I'm certainly not going to wait for you to prove yourself or pay me back somehow. This robe says, I've covered you. The ring says, I've given you back your authority and your position. The shoes say that you are not on any kind of probation here. You are my son. You are a part of this family. You were dead, but now you're alive again. That's resurrection language. You were lost, but now you are found, and that means we celebrate. And they start a party. End of Act One, time for popcorn, 
and fatted calf. I'm sure that's at the concession stand during this show. Here's act two. We start with the dance. There are people inside the party tent. And the DJ is spinning and the bass is thumping and everybody's feasting, everybody's dancing. And at the very same time, the other son, remember there are two sons? The other son is out in the field. He's older and he's working. He's working. He hears the disco music and he comes in to see what all the fuss is about. And he sees the tent and he sees that clearly there's a surprise party here for somebody. Maybe it's for me, finally. A servant tells him about all that has happened in Act 1. And he's instantly furious. He refuses to go into the dance and be a part of the celebration His father hears about this, and his father goes out to him. And he realizes the party isn't for him, and that's probably why he's a little mad. But more particularly, he's angry about the cost of the party. He singles out the calf. He says, Dad, you never gave me even a goat to celebrate with, and you're giving him a calf? If you need a modern translation of that, it is, you never gave me a bike and you're giving him a car? That's it. And background helps to see why this older brother takes offense. In that day, most, almost, almost, almost every meal uh, was without meat. The, The only time you would ever have meat during a meal was at a party. And the most expensive delicacy that could ever be offered up at a party was a fatted calf. And so that tells us that the whole village would have been there. There's no way that this kind of expense would have been paid just for some private family party. Everyone around would have been invited. There would have been a huge tent. There would have been a buffet line, a DJ, the whole shebang, a dance floor. And none of that party happens for free. Somebody has to Venmo somebody for that. And you can see the older brother's logic. How dare you, Dad? How dare you use our wealth like this? And he purposely insults his father. Verse 29 kind of obscures things in English. But there's no address of father He just says, look. What is he doing? He's verbally pinning his father up against a wall and saying, look here, you. And he's asserting his dominance over his father. And just like the younger son's request earlier was an insult to his father, here the older son's lack of respect for his father is just as incredible of an insult to the father. And also, I want you to see the tone here. He calls his brother, not my brother, what does he say? This son of yours. Moms, dads, do you know that line, right? It's not my brother, this son of yours. And then the swipe that he makes at his brother is also telling. What does he claim here? He claims that his brother hired prostitutes. Do a quick scan of Acts chapter 1, I mean Act 1, Act 1, that we just went through, and you'll see that the older brother is the only reason that we ever envisioned that the younger brother's wild living would have included prostitutes. He's the only one that ever mentions the word 
And so this son publicly humiliates his father by not going into the dance, and then he publicly humiliates his father again by refusing to call him father, and then he makes sure that his brother is seen as a lower-class citizen in everybody's eyes, and surely, surely the father won't stand for this. What will the father do? He responds with a very tender word, son. We could also translate it, my child. He goes on, I still want you in the feast. Every other father would have disowned you by now for what you've done, but I still want you in. It's right that we celebrate your brother that was dead but is now alive, who was lost but is now found. We have to dance. Would you please, please come in and dance with us? And scene. End of act two. End of story. You know those movies that just go black at the end without answering all your questions? I think they got that from Jesus. Because here's, that's what he did. That's what he does here. It's a little frustrating. What does the older brother end up doing? We don't know. What happens to this family? We don't know. Do they get along in the end? We don't know. Jesus never tells us. And so what is he doing here? What is he trying to tell us as he leaves so many questions unanswered? And there's a lot we could say. I just want to say this today. One of the things he's telling us about is salvation. Because you and I, we are all trying to control our world. We're all trying to control other people to get what we want. We're trying to save ourselves. How did the younger brother do it? He tried to control his life and his father by rebelling. How did the older brother do it? He tried to control his life and his father by being reliable, by being, we could say it this way, religious. And we're all the same in this room. We pick one path or the other. And neither one will get us home. Jesus tells us here what will save us. He says salvation is found in this. Number one, the love of the Father. Did you notice that the Father went out to both sons? He goes out to the younger son. He goes out to the older son. That action speaks volumes about this God that we have. We have a God who moves towards us. That's an earth-shattering revelation about God in this day when Jesus tells this story. Before this, when Jesus tells this story, people thought that the only way to a relationship with God was to clean themselves up and scratch and claw and climb their way to God. But here in this story, there's a God who goes out a God who reaches out in love to us just as we are in order to save us. Here's number two. Salvation is found in the sins we repent of. Uh, I want to be very careful as I word this line. Here it is. You need to learn to repent for more than your sin. What do I mean by that? Well, we see the younger son in this story and we think, oh, that's how we come to be saved. We get right with God by repenting of our list. 
We get a little speech together like the younger brother and we go to God and we say, I've sinned against heaven and against you and I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Is that repentance? Yes, absolutely, yes. And it's, it is needed. That's where we start. But I want you to take a look at the older brother. And when you do, you'll come to see that he doesn't have a huge list like the younger brother. What does it say? He's always obeyed. He's always been good. He's served his father faithfully. He says, I've never disobeyed even a single command of yours. And the father doesn't contradict him on that. And so he doesn't have a list to repent of. Of course, he's not perfect, but he's exceptionally religious. There's not a lot of fault here. And yet, he's a lost Son, he's just as lost as the younger son with the long list. So here's the question. How does a faithful, obedient, religious person get lost in the first place, let alone get saved? And here's the answer. This story tells us that a Christian is someone who has learned to repent even for the reasons and the motivations that drove them to do the right thing in the first place. Even the right things that we do can be an attempt for us to avoid God or control Him. God, I've done all of this for you. You owe me, right? We can be our own Savior even under the banner of all of the good that we have done. And when we realize that, that even our good won't save us, and we begin to repent of why we've done all the good that we've done, everything changes. Here's the third thing about salvation that we need to pay attention to, and it's the cost to bring us home what it costs to bring us home. The Pharisee, uh, the older brother, obeys God just to get his stuff. But a Christian obeys God just to get God. And so, if I'm pretty proud of my Sunday school record and I've got a bunch of stars, then how do I make that leap? How do I go from obeying God just to get his stuff to obeying God just to get God? The best agent of change here is to see what it costs for God to welcome you home. In the story, the father won't even think about letting his younger son pay him back. He offers up the fatted calf for the party, and we think, oh, well, the fatted calf was the father's calf all along, so the cost was kind of absorbed, right? Uh, It was really in-house. It really didn't cost anybody anything, but... But in verse 31, do you remember? The father says to the older brother, everything I have is yours. That was literally true. Why is it true? Because the estate had already been divided up. And the younger son had spent every bit of his share. And so all of the estate that is left belongs to the older brother. Every robe, every ring, every fatted calf, they all belong to the older brother. And so the only way for the younger son to be brought back into the family was for the older brother to pay for it. 
Every bit of the party was coming out of the older brother's share of the estate. Somebody always has to pay for the party, right? And when the older brother realizes that it's him that has to pay, he's furious about it. Jesus puts this nasty elder brother in the story to show the Pharisees that he's talking to what they look like. He's holding up to a mirror to them, really good religious types. And he's saying, this is how you really are. You point to everybody else's sin and you point to your own goodness as if you think it's enough to save you. You are selfish older brothers that can't stand to see your younger, younger prodigal brother come home. And the story invites us to imagine then, what would a true elder brother have done? What if Jesus would have made the older brother the hero of the story? How would the story have gone? It would go something like this. The true elder brother would step up when he saw the agony of the father because his younger son went off and rebelled. And this true older brother would have come to the father and said, I'm going out to find my brother who is lost. And when I find him, if he's ruined himself and he's spent all of his money, then I will bring him home at my own expense. I will give whatever it takes to bring him home, dad. Don't you worry. I've got this. That would have been the true elder brother. But Jesus doesn't put that true elder brother in the story. Why not? Because the true elder brother is the one telling the story. He is that right true elder brother. And as Jesus went out, he doesn't just go out to the next town to find us. No, Jesus went out from heaven to the earth to find us. And when he found us lost and penniless and in the mud of our own choices, he paid the cost to bring us back into God's family. And it cost him his life. He was stripped naked so that we could be given a robe of righteousness. He wore a ring of thorns on his head so that we could wear a ring on our hand and be given into God's family. He was sacrificed like the calf so that we could go into the celebration of heaven for all time. And it was on the cross. It was on the cross as Jesus was paying with his very life that he prayed to God. And he said this, my God, my God. And it is the only time out of all the times that we have recorded that Jesus does not call God Father. The only time at that moment on the cross Jesus was not a son. He was rejected. God had turned his back on him. Jesus was not treated as a son so that you and I could be. He's the true elder brother who paid the price to bring you home. And that's what you have to see. How much it cost so that you could come home. Maybe, maybe you're a younger brother type here today. Maybe you tried the God thing, right? And for whatever reason, it didn't go well, and you shook your fist at God, and you said, drop dead God, and you took all of His goodness that He ever gave you, and you ran off to live however you wanted to live. Maybe that's you today. Can I challenge you to this, just this? Would you just keep coming back? Just keep coming back. 
Would you keep reconsidering who this God is? Maybe, just maybe, the God that you rejected isn't the God at all that Jesus is offering you. Would you entertain that maybe, just maybe, God isn't who you thought He was? That instead, He's a loving Father who desperately wants you to come home. Younger brothers, come to your senses and come home. The life that you're after is only found in the Father's house, so just please, would you come home? The parable really is to the older brothers in the room. And that's a lot of us. Jesus wants us to put ourselves into the story, and a lot of us, too many of us, can relate more to the older brother. And we're mad at the people who have hurt us. And there are classes of people that we kind of look down on because of what they represent to us, and we think, I'm the good one here, God. (laughs) I'm the one going to church and reading my Bible and praying all the time, so why is life going like this? All of these other people are living any way they want, and they seem to be really happy. And here I am, slaving away for God, and I'm miserable. If that's you today, can I give you a challenge? Would you dig into the reason that you're doing all the good that you do? Is it to get God's stuff, or is it to get God? Himself. Maybe the thing standing between you and God today isn't your sin as much as the moral record that you're trying to build up to impress Him. It will not get you home like you think. The only way we stop being elder brothers is by understanding what the true elder brother did for us, that it was His obedience, His sacrifice that paid the cost, not our own, not our own. And so, older brothers... Come into the party. The price has been paid, and you have lost nothing, and it is time to dance. Would you just do that? Come into the party and dance. Lay your deadly good doing down, down at Jesus' feet, and stand in Him alone, gloriously complete. Father God, would you show us the gospel that we need to see clearly today? Show us the gospel that welcomes the sinner home. Show us the gospel that draws the self-righteous into the party. I pray we will never forget this story from Jesus because it holds the power to change our lives. Thank you for being the perfect father we need. We didn't expect this kind of a God, but that's the kind of God we have. The prodigal God, generous with his love. Thank you for bringing us home. Thank you for inviting us to dance. And it's in the name of Jesus, the true elder brother who paid for us all that we pray. And everybody said.